Welcome to another episode of Occupied. Today I have my amazing friend Ruth. You may know her better as the Moho OT on all of the socials. Uh, coming in and explaining in detail uh, about the actual Moho model. Now it's a model that I learned at uni uh, and I had a few reservations about using it in practice and I go through those in detail uh, with Ruth and see how things have changed how I might not have been using it correctly, uh, and how you guys can get more information and more education around the use of this particular model. So sit back, enjoy, and I hope you guys get as much out of it as I did. G'day, my name's Brock Cook, and welcome to Occupied. In this podcast, we're aiming to put the occupation in occupational therapy. We explore the people, topics, theories, and underpinnings that make this profession so incredible. If you're new here, you can find all of our previous episodes and resources at OccupiedPodcast.com. But for now, let's roll the episode. So I accidentally became an occupational therapist. That's a um, big slip. It is a big slip. <laughs> so... I originally trained to be a sports performance coach and lecturer. Um, but when I trained many, many moons ago, it was still very novice in its um, profession and it was very, very difficult to get jobs. Um, it wasn't as predominant as it is now. And I was looking around for a job to do to pay my bills. Um, and I came across a... Um, OT tech job. Um, I don't know what the equivalent is in Australia. Like an in, OT assistant um, or something? Maybe. Uh, uh, in between an OT assistant and an OT qualified OT. Okay. So I had, had my own caseload, but didn't do the clinical reasoning with the complex patients. It sounds like it sounds like more. That sounds more like what the OT assistant role is in the states. Yeah. 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 More aligned with that. Yeah. So. Um, it was in um, trauma orthopedics in fracture clinic and hand clinic making splints, thermoplastic splints oh, and pressure garments. And... Pardon? My favourite. Yeah, your favourite subject. Mm. <laughs> favourite topic of conversation. Um, and I didn't, didn't know anything about OT then. And I just saw um, in, in the advert about making thermoplastic splints and the only A-level I got was woodwork um and PE so I thought oh great and then they mentioned about therapy and rehab and I did that in my foundation years of my degree so I just thought well it looks like a cool job I applied for it um and I got it and I did four years there and I absolutely loved it because it was so niche and so specialist um didn't really have much exposure to the whole concept of OT and the core values um, but I really, really wanted to go on and do more complex bracing. Um, so they convinced me to apply for my OT degree. Um, and then as I finished my OT degree, or as I went through it, really fell in love with the core values of the profession and ended up doing my foundation years in neuro rehab. And then I've slowly moved over to mental health. Um, so OT really did find me. It seems to be a common thing. I think it was Kwaku when I was talking to him. He was in a job, but they were the ones that sort of convinced him to go and study yeah. 
out here as well. Yeah, when I listened to your podcast with KK, I was like, oh my gosh, that is... Must that's be, my story in a way must be an english thing because i don't think I've, I've yeah. ever, i don't think i've ever heard of that happening anywhere else i'm sure it, maybe it happens in the states but it's, i've never heard of it happening in australia i'm sure it has at some point but yeah mm. it seems to be a, a very english thing to happen yeah so you're in mental health now you're probably more well known to people for your interest in the moho. Yes, yeah. Being the the moho ot on Instagram and Facebook and any other places, or just mainly those two. I do pop up on LinkedIn occasionally, LinkedIn. but mostly Facebook and Instagram and Twitter as well. Twitter, the enigma. Yep. Yes. So sort of a love hate relationship with Twitter. Yeah, I've been on there for fifteen years, and I still feel the same. Still love hate. Um, where did that interest come from? Why why moho? Wow. I just saw your eyes um, light up then. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I first did um, mental health as a rotational post and I so literally this is after landed you graduated? In, yeah, after I graduated. Mm-hmm. So um, after I graduated, I did a year in uh, complex neuro rehab. And then um, I rotated around to dementia, a complex current dementia inpatient, and then acute mental health. And all my experience have been physical health and, and with the complex current dementia. Um, and even when I was qualifying, all my experience was physical health. And here I was in mental health on an acute ward, thrust into the role of OT um, and we had quite a staffing crisis at that time. So um, senior OTs were few and far between. So we didn't have that day-to-day support um, as relatively newly qualified. Um, and because you had a year and a half under your belt, everyone was like, oh, you're fine. You can, you know, <laughs> you're, you're a grown-up now. <laughs> um, crack on. So I had an absolutely amazing Band 7 um, supervisor who spent a lot of time with me find helping me find my feet in mental health and she cottoned on very quickly that I was a process thinker and I like to framework um and she introduced or reintroduced me to moho and that is where my love really for moho blossomed um, we studied it at university we used it but had the same barriers as everyone else really complex language didn't quite understand it um but then as I started breaking it down and using it with patients and service users I really got to understand what all the different aspects were about it um and then this led to me doing a service development project with my band seven um I moved over to a new ward where we opened a short-term recovery ward and we actually created the whole of the OT process on that ward around Moho and then with because of that success there that was adopted by some of some parts of that was adopted by other members within the service line and we actually received um training from Sue Parkinson Sue Parkinson came down to the trust and gave us a whole week's worth of training around Moho um the Mohost assessment, Moho Explore remotivation process in the VQ. And I was in my element. I absolutely loved it. <laughs> so that's where I really first met Sue. 
um, and then roll on a couple of years. Um, I was on mat leave um, and I was just sat there having moved house, going through all my paperwork and getting all my bits together and thinking, oh, I've got some time on my hands. I can sort of collate all this information and get it into one spot. Um, And I just um, had uh, some students before I went on mat leave and they were all asking me the same questions and lots of um, newly qualified OTs were coming in and spending time with me on the ward and asking me the same questions about MoHo. And I thought, wow, I've got all this information here. Let me just answer these questions. So the next time I get asked it, I've got it here all to hand and it's in one spot. And that's how the blog started. Very OT of you. Pardon? Very OT of you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was just a little project to keep me occupied whilst I was on mat leave, um, to help me feel connected still to being an OT and um, keep up to date with everything because I was re- really worried about having a year out and then um, jumping back into it. Um and I knew I was going back to a new hospital or a different hospital and a different team in a different area and going to an acute ward rather than a recovery ward. So I had my own anxieties there um, about juggling the role of a new mum and returning to work in a new area. So I just thought, stick with what I know, keep that confidence going. Um, and then Sue tweeted about uh, becoming a MoHo, independent MoHo, MoHo's trainer. Um, and it turns out that she was actually joking with a friend. But I saw that tweet and I reached out to her and that's where the discussions started and um, ha- had a long chat with her over my mat leave. And and that's how the Moho OT was born. Very nice. So, the big question. Yeah. What, what is the Moho? What is the Moho? What is oh, it? Okay. Besides a very strange <laughs> word. Yeah, so it is the model of human occupation. So it basically um, looks at our, the person that we are working with and we, it helps us look at the what they're doing, the why they're doing it, when they're doing it, how they're doing it and who with. And then we collate all that information and we come up with um, an occupational formulation that puts across their viewpoints, their strengths and weaknesses the current barriers that they're experiencing and that helps us to form a um, person-centred intervention plan with collaborative goal setting. So give us a bit of an overview of the the model itself. Obviously, there's a lot of assessments and stuff that branch off that, but give us an overview, if you can, of the, the model. So if you look at the model, it's in like a 2D flow, isn't it? Um, on the left hand side, you look at the, the person, which looks at um, the volition, the habituation and the personal causation. And then we move on to the dimensions of doing, which is actually the, basically the task analysis of when you're working with a person. And then the end of the, the flow is uh, more about the occupational narrative and the life story and how that person identifies with themselves and their competence at being able to maintain their daily routine and how this has fluctuated over their life and is impacted on their current experiences and their current limitations. But the trick with Moho is not visualising it as a 2D 
flat flowchart. It's about visualizing it as a hierarchy, as a, a 3D model where all the components are interacting and linked in and every single component is important. And if even one of those components is 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 experiencing difficulties or there's a problem with it, then that is where we experience dysfunction and where we have an impact on our mental health and our physical health. And I think that's that that's an important point to make because I think that's always been one of my issues with the Moho is that, I don't know, the structure that it was always delivered. And I don't know whether it's just that's the way it used to be conceptualized and that's now changed or if it was just a really shitty drawing to start with back in the 80s. But to me, I've always kind of thought of that the opposite way around in that like the person's narrative and everything shouldn't be the last thing that you look at. It should probably be the first thing that you look at. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a, a, for a lot of my career. I, I used to use the Moho stuff quite a bit early in my career and then kind of moved away from it because it just wasn't fitting with what I was or how I was looking at the world. And I do think it's because of how the, like how it was taught to me way back in the, yeah, I don't even know when, probably 16, 17 years ago now, when I, whenever it was that I started uni. Um, that's how it was taught. It's this flows into this and then this flows into that. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. But I, don't, does, I can't make it, I couldn't make it fit real world situations. And I think that's where it completely changed for me is that when I started looking at it as like a 3D entity rather than a picture in a textbook, and actually how um, all of that impacts on the person. And also I forgot the most important bit is the environment and how the person's physical environment interacts with all of those aspects to impact on their performance of occupation. And when I started really looking at it as the, the heterarchy, it just all clicked into place for me. So going into those uh areas like obviously you said the first area was the person and there was different categories and other can you give us a overview of those like what they are volition yeah, was one personal causation and i can't even remember the third one so we've got um volition like terrible which... student <laughs> so volition is um based on our interests what is imp um what we find enjoyable our values what is important to us um, but our values are also influenced by our culture and society. So what is deemed important in our culture and society also um, has a significant impact on what we feel is important. So, for example, if you grow up in a culture where academia is a measure of success, then um, that will be of importance to you. But you may be conflicted with that because you might want to measure your success in a different way. Um, and then if we are non-congruent with our values, then that's where we can experience like shame and um, fear of failure or uh, feel low in mood or unable to achieve things. And then we've got our personal causation. So that is how we think about ourselves, how effective we feel that we are achieving stuff um, how effective we are at achieving the goals that we want to achieve and how capable we are. So how capable we feel that we are at making that change or achieving that change. Does that include things like self-esteem or is that different? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Self-esteem would be sort of a lay term 
for it. Yep. Um, so that volition, those three parts, you need all of those three parts to um, make you motivated to engage. So if you're not, um, if it's not, if the activity is not of interest to you, it's not important to you and you don't feel good about yourself or feel that you are going to fail, then you are unlikely to engage or experience occupational flow when participating in that activity. Makes sense. Then we move on to habituation, which is broken down into two parts, which is our habits and our um, our roles. So our roles are what we identify ourselves as and what others identify ourselves as and the associated responsibilities that come with those roles. So, for example, I identify myself as a mum and the responsibilities that come with that role are keeping my baby alive, safe and well fed, you know, happy, playing with them. Um, And there's also certain social expectations that are placed on that role as well. Um, And then our habits are our automatic actions that help us enact our roles and help us keep our habituation. And our habituation is our routine, which is influenced by the world by nature by day and night it's influenced by our society and our culture Um, if we live in a nine-to-five world Monday to Friday or if we do if we live more in a 24-7 environment where we're doing shift patterns um, if we practice a faith um, and we have religious days so if we pray every day then that'll impact on our routine or if our um, our day of faith is a Friday or a Saturday or Sunday they're, they're in in our routines and their specific days set aside and again specific roles and responsibilities are attributed to those days does it actually does it actually look at them as occupational roles or does it use a different definition so um faith related faith related activities are um occupational roles within Mm. moho yeah that you can be a member of a faith community cool and then you've got um, personal causation, which is how you feel when you are doing that activity, um, how that activity makes you feel. It's a subjective experience. So it's difficult to assess. Um, at the moment, there isn't any standardised assessments on personal capacity. It's The information is elicited from your conversations and you're talking to the person and them describing how they feel whilst they're doing it and whether they're enjoying it or whether it feels challenging or whether it's causing them pain or fatigue, um, those sorts of things. And also about the environment. How do they feel in that environment and what impact is that environment having on them? Okay. All right. And then where do we go from there? So then we go into the dimensions of doing. So then we have skill, performance and participation. So, when we look at the skill we are looking at the motor process and communication interaction skills so the things that we need to be able to do to participate in what we want and need to do so when we look at motor skills we are looking at um, our musculoskeletal system we are looking at our movement patterns our mobility our stamina we're looking at how we do things like can we bend down and pick things up can we put things away in cupboards 
Can we hold on to the knife when we're cooking? Can we carry pans? Can we walk around, stand for long enough to do the activity? Can we get around the community? Or do we need equipment or adaptations or, com or a compensatory approach, maybe like a stall to help us conserve energy? Then we look at communication interaction skills. So the communication interaction skills are not just about talking, they're about our body language and our nonverbal communication. Um, can we identify what we need, our needs are? Can we communicate what we want and what we need? Um, is our body language congruent with what we're saying? Um, how do we interact with others? How do we interact with our social community? How do we interact with our friends, our family? Um, are we vulnerable? Are we at risk of exploitation or um, abuse or something something like that as a result of our communication and interaction skills deficits? Mm -hmm. um, what is the content of what we're saying? So a prime example when we're working mental health is like, what is the content? Is it coherent? Are we able to hold a conversation or is it heavily steeped in paranoia and um is it factual um would that person be able to build a relationship with someone through communication or is it really going to limit their ability to make connections um and then we look at process skills which is cognition um all the areas of cognition so in um Moho, it breaks them down to timing, knowledge, um, thinking, sequencing, uh, amongst many others. Yeah. But the, the the great thing about Moho, where we talk, and specifically when we're talking about the dimensions of doing, is that you don't have to just use the Moho assessments and you don't just have to use the Moho model. It was specifically designed to work alongside other models and other assessments. So if you, once you've done your screening assessments, if you notice that a person has quite significant deficits in one or two or three, these three areas, then you can use other assessment tools to really unpick what these deficits are and what interventions need to be done. So you could use more um, in-depth cognitive assessments or more in-depth sensory profiling assessments, more in-depth communication um motor skills assessments so you don't just have to use one of the 21 moho assessments that's that's probably a good thing i was i'll be honest i was never a big fan of the ones that i have used so they've been they've been gradually adapted over the last few uh, over the last 40 years mm. um so it might be worth uh having revisiting some of them oh definitely and that's uh, i'll Completely honest, because I kind of drifted away, I haven't really revisited them in the last, oh, I'd say maybe eight, nine years maybe. So it's definitely something I need to have a look at and just see, does it fit now better with my, I guess, my conceptualization of the profession and how I, how I operate anyway. So in the last couple of years, the role checklist has been really um, evidence-based and they've republished that one, the remotivation process. Um, they've done a lot of work around that and republished versions of that, uh, the interest checklist, amongst many of the others. The 
continually the evidence base is continually being uh, being established and built um and the mohost itself i think has been translated into 19 different languages um and is being used internationally so should we go back to the dimensions of doing yes so once we've looked at the skull the skills which are the goal directed actions um, required to do our activities we then look at the performance which is the various individual activities or occupational forms within that occupation so to put that in everyday speak because i know that's a lot of long words when we look at um cooking cooking a meal the um, occupational forms with that would be meal planning it would be preparing the meal it would be laying the table sitting down eating it and then doing the washing up for example um, and we are looking at the different aspects of that task and, and which bits are we able to do and which bits we aren't able to do and why are we not able to do that so for example we might actually be able to actually cook the meal itself but because of cognitive deficits we might not be able to meal plan um we might not remember that we need to eat or we might not in, um, identify that we're hungry or um, anxiety might mean that we're actually unable to leave the house to go and cook the food so when we're talking about meal preparation we we're not engaging in that in that activity because of a couple of barriers mm. but we could actually cook a meal yep. so this is why it's really important when we assess that that we take in the whole aspect because you could watch someone cook and think oh they're absolutely fine but then look at the greater context and, and why is that person actually not eating what yep. are the barriers yeah um and then we look at participation which is the broadest term of all and it's how we participate in the active action activities that we choose and want to do to keep us well um and how our performance in those is impacted by our performance capacity our habituation of abolition and environment so what do you mean by how we participate because if we're participating we're participating no so when I say how is like, what are our strengths? What are our limitations? Um, how we actually do that task? The um, So the habits that are involved in that task, the routine that are involved in our tasks, when we do it, what time of day we do it, how frequently we do it. You know, some people, when they cook, they batch cook and freeze it. Some people like to cook lots of different meals. Is that the, the, the broader how? Of the occupation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, because I think that's something that because that was the other thing that I used to get very confused with is a lot of the categories seem to have so much overlap, and I'm like, yeah. it doesn't make sense. All right, maybe I was too analytical. I'm like, I don't get this. It doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> and even like a lot of the diagrams that are often used that I've seen in textbooks and then in blog posts and stuff shows those categories overlapping, and I'm like, so they're meant to overlap, but I, I still don't get it. Um, so then it's it's building on that 3D, mm. they're interacting. So our skill abilities is impacting on our performance and our performance is impacting on our participation. So how does the participation different, differ from the environment that the occupations 
performed in. That leads nicely onto my next, what I was going to talk about next. Excellent. That might answer my question then. (laughs) So when we are looking at the person taking part in their chosen activity or occupation, we also need to consider the environment that they do it in. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about the environment, we talk about the physical environment, so the architecture, architecture, but also this, the social environment, um, friends, family, informal um, support, formal care and support. Um, we do it a lot with also the medical health professionals or the MDT or even um, other tertiary services or if they're members of that, narcotics anonymous or things like that so that all comes into their environment into their social environment Mm -hmm. and then whilst we're observing the person we look at what demands and constraints that environment that they're doing the activity in provides and what opportunities and resources so someone may be able to cook a meal absolutely fine in their own home Mm -hmm. they know where everything is it's familiar to them they have an electric kettle, they plug the kettle into the wall and they turn it on, put them into uh, another kitchen environment, one they've never been in. They like don't a hospital know where. kitchen. <laughs> a hospital kitchen. <laughs> um, and all of a sudden there isn't an electric kettle that you plug into the wall. It's actually a kettle that you lift up and you put onto the hob. Um, and which is, a, never seen which is a stove if people, like oh, a stove. fire stove if people aren't from England. Um, and all of a sudden, that person can't make a cup of tea because they they don't know what a hob they is. Don't know, they don't know what a hob is. <laughs> <laughs> so that that person's environment has had a direct impact on that person's ability to take part in the activity that they need to do. Um, when we talk about demands and constraints, so we look at what does that environment demand of that person. So if the environment demands too much. Uh, whether the 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 environment is um too hard to access or too overstimulating um then we're going to become overwhelmed we are unlikely to want to engage or interact with that environment so we will avoid that in that environment um on the other hand, if that environment doesn't demand enough, doesn't challenge us enough, then we'll be become bored, disinterested, disengaged, and again, unlikely to participate in anything. Then we look at constraints. So literally, how does that environment limit participation and why does it limit participation? And we look at also look at opportunities and resources. So when we talk about resources, that's not just about physical resources. Um, and under physical resources would be equipment or setup or uh, people like your support package or your friends and family, but also uh, and your finances. Um, but we also talk about social resources in in there as well. So that's um, under environment. Yeah. Yeah. So so when you look at the environment, you always consider the physical element and the social the social element. Um, and then what opportunities? Oh, resources as well. Sorry, we would link in there. Uh, we would look at um, like access to things. So uh, the job centre or Citizens Advisor Bureau or the library or actually accessing your um, community health appointments and things like that. Can they? How are they able to? What's stopping them from doing that? You know, we 
we routinely get people that are not engaging with services but when you actually unpick it it's because there isn't a bus stop near their house that they can get to that gets them to the hospital Mm -hmm. so to get to their appointment it actually costs them 20 pounds in a taxi Um, and if they've got to go in every week for blood tests 20 pounds is a lot of money so they're not likely well they're unlikely to be able to afford that um, or their priority might be putting food on their table so they're not actually disengaged for services there Mm. is a barrier to them accessing that support yeah so going back to my question before with regards to the difference between participation and environment am i right in tell me if i'm right in seeing it this way that you're when you're looking at participation it's yes it is those sort of contextual factors around how that person performs a certain occupation so like your example with the kettle like they how they perform it is with an electric kettle and they'll boil their water for their cup of tea because with the electric kettle so that would be looked under the participation but the environment would be whether or not the environment is facilitating that participation for that individual or whether it's a barrier to it yeah you can't look at them as two separate things yeah when you are observing a person you always need to be when you're observing a person doing something you also need to be observing the impact that that environment has on their doing i always find that not to any model that just because there's a lot of models that just have all their little bits and pieces and then they just plop it on a page with environment being everything else around it and i'm like I feel like it's almost like it's an afterthought for so many people. And I'm like, it's kind of important, guys. You need to kind of pay attention to this thing. In in Moho, this, it is really heavily stressed that environment is interwoven into everything. Mm. So it might appear on the diagram as a circle around everything, but actually when you are looking at the different areas, you're thinking about how does that person's environment impact on that so when you're looking at volition how does that person's environment impact on their values how you know how is their environment impacted on what their interests are Mm -hmm. how has their environment impacted on how they feel about themselves if they're an environment where they're continually being told that they're non-concordant or difficult or disengaging or happens a lot um, you know, you have behaviours that challenge or like people don't really want to work with you because, you know, <laughs> you're a complex case. I mean, how is that how is that going to make that person feel about mm-hmm. themselves and how is that going to impact on their volition to actually engage with services? Um, and the, the same with habituation. So if, if a person does want to um, pray every day, um, does their environment actually enable them to do that? Um, do they have the physical resources or are they at risk of persecution if they do pray every day? You know, it's, it, you really have to, you don't just consider volition or habituation or skills on its own. You really have to, when you think about that aspect of the model, you really have to think about how the environment is interwoven into that and how the environment impacts on that area that you're looking at. That was the other thing, and you kind of just brought it up then. I was thinking before when you were describing the environment is there's a lot of different models, uh, not like OT models, but like models around environmental context that look at sometimes four and five different aspects and and 
physical and social are only a couple of them. Things like institutional, so like government policy and that kind of stuff, is that somehow mentioned or included in that as well? Yeah, definitely. I know some models do look at that as part of social, but a lot of them separate it. So when when you once you've got your head around looking at the demands and the constraints and the opportunities and the resources and how they all impact on the ability to do, you've then got to consider the the immediate environment, so that person's immediate environment, that room, and mm-hmm. how that impacts physically and socially. You also need to look at the local, which is the community, how they access their community. Mm-hmm. And then you need to look at the global. So what laws and legislations are there that um, impact on their participation? So that could be what you could use to advocate, what could be used to promote, but also things around occupational apartheid, occupational injustice. Those are where these themes can come in and be used. I think, yeah, uh, some people may know that as like micro, meso, macro environmental levels. It's a same same concept just different wording um there was an interesting i don't remember what it was called uh it came out of the it was out of the uk uh it was the university of canterbury um had a model called the context of participation uh which was for years, I don't even know if it's still available online. That they had like a little like interactive model that you could use. Um, but for years, that was like my go-to for trying to get my head around uh, all of those different levels. But it actually had extra ones. It it broke it down. I wouldn't have been surprised if it was actually based on Moho, orig- like the original concept before they built this thing, because the very inner circle was uh, intra and interpersonal. So it was essentially you as a person and and your uh, volition and your habituation and that sort of stuff, as well as your ability to communicate like you were talking about before. That's all right. I'll see if I can find it later. But, um, yeah, it was like, essentially a, it was a wheel um, with, I think it was like five different levels and had that national sort of level but actually had examples of what um would fall into each of those levels as well which was kind of handy yeah so so there is um if you look in the latest edition of the moho textbook which is the fifth edition there's that little diagram there so global context local context immediate context person yeah yeah, and then so that's on page ninety-eight, and then if you turn uh, page ninety-four and ninety-five, it's got tables of listing. Okay. So in um, examples of environmental components and qualities, so um, your physical environment, your space and objects, and what you would be looking at, um, the environmental components and the environmental qualities that you would look at. Um, and then your social environment and also your occupations, your activities and your overarching context. So what are the different things that you're looking at? So in um, the occupational environment, for example, um, when you're looking at the environmental components, 
you're looking at the activity, which would be self-care or personal activities. You're looking at domestic activities, home maintenance and gardening. If you're caregiving, if you're doing paid work, voluntary work or education, leisure activities, play, if you're working more in paediatrics, how you relax, how you unwind, um, your self-care in that sense, um, your exercise and also your sleep, because we do consider sleep as quite an important occupation. Yeah, it's kind of And you look at your... Pardon? It's kind of important. (laughs) Um, and then look at other things like travel finance management um, using a computer electronic communications so again um, an example of that would be you you might be able to budget on a day-to-day basis and really be good at managing your income and outgoings but if you're like me and you keep locking yourself out of your internet banking (laughs) um, are you actually able to access your finances you, you know, I've, I've got no problems of knowing where my bills are due or, you know, I could tell you my monthly budget probably down to the penny or where I spend things and what I need to spend money on. But actually getting to paying bills <laughs> and getting into my bank account, I'm continually having to ring up Internet banking and get that unlocked. Now, I have the ability to ring up and have a conversation with someone and say, I'm really sorry, I've locked myself out again. But imagine if you couldn't. Imagine if you didn't even have a phone or access to internet to get onto your internet banking. So that is a, a, a good example of how your immediate environment and your global environment, looking at occupational apartheid and, and that sort of thing, really impact on your participation. So you might have the skill, but you don't have the resources. Yep. I just actually found that tool. It is the context of participation the actual tool is called the critical thinking tool it's very original uh Ragul and ian marsh but so the inner i was almost i was almost correct the inner circle is participation then yeah. the next one out is the body and identity and then the next one out is that sort of more localized so it's local environments support networks daily living activities the thing i like about it conceptualizing it this way is it doesn't separate so like our physical environment and our social environment on that same level, there's you know stuff that's really close to us. Like you said, the room we're in or our close friends, that sort of stuff, they're all on that sort of same level when it comes to supporting or dissuading participation in something. Um, the next one out is sort of that wider, more community stuff, so education, housing, economic status, health, I'm reading upside down, health and social care, technology, leisure, work, and media. And then that larger one is a type of economy, national policies, social or cultural values. Um, that's the, the outside one. And I've always liked looking at environment and I see a lot of models moving more towards this kind of, uh, I guess, framing of the environment rather than trying to just separate. Because back, back in the day, it used to just be like physical, social and that was it like you just categorize splitting you're essentially splitting the environment up as opposed to looking at uh how close it is to having an impact on your occupational performance which is a completely different way of looking at it you know you might you might have a really good supportive network but if you can't physically get out of your environment to to visit that supportive network then you can't engage with that network Mm. So they're, they're so, so interlinked. 
And that's the the other way of looking at that too is I, I essentially I used to use it to try and like line up all the factors to get to participation in the middle. And it might be I've I actually used this tool with clients before. Like it might be that everything else lines up and everything is sweet, but it's not an issue so much in this country anymore. But back when I had was using this tool, um gay marriage wasn't legal. So like when I was looking at that as an example, like everything else might line up to participation in say, getting married, except for national policy. Yeah. Obviously, thankfully that's changed now, but back then that was like an example I was I would use as national policy being the barrier because yeah. a lot of people struggled to get their head around uh I guess the bigger impacts like the the uh not not necessarily bigger on scope but um bigger as in like national level <laughs> cultural level that kind of thing yeah. because that's i mean we grew up in it so sometimes it's hard to see that stuff if we're in it yeah does that because i feel like back in the day i feel like this has changed i feel like this is different for moho because i feel like Back in the day when it was taught to me, it was just splitting it. I think Moho has grown and evolved with with the with need. So Moho has grown and evolved with what is demanded of it. Mm. So it, it, yes, it was co- conceived and conceptualized forty years ago. Mm. But it hasn't just stayed what it was, what Dr. Kilhoffner drew on a piece of paper 40 years ago and researched with his army veterans 40 years ago and published. You know, we've had 40 years of international research um, that has gone into this model to update it, refine it um, and reevaluate it and readdress things and add things that are prominent in today's society. For example, culture. You know, we have it's an internationally used model, so we've got all of those influences, and uh, and also as well, like thing, things like you're talking about sexual identity, and that that's forty years ago, sex wasn't considered an occupation within the model, but nowadays people are using this model within um, services that address sexual orientation and sexual identity that they are they have found that they can actually successfully use this model in those services whereas 40 years ago they wouldn't have been able to do so it i do wonder and i know like there's no like perfect model everyone's always looking for this like ideal model or the the magic bullet or the magic pill or whatever it is everyone's always looking for a shortcut and that's why i've I've said publicly and you've even commented to me in the past that like no model is perfect and no model and I know you're a big fan of this so I'm not like taking a stab but no model is suitable for everyone but I think that's an example of where trying to improve uh, an existing resource so that it stays relevant with what's actually happening in the world um and that's I mean, that's awesome to hear because I can guarantee you that 90% of the models that OTs use aren't doing that. No, I definitely I definitely agree with you. If you really, truly are putting the person at the centre of your work with them and the interventions that you're doing with them, then using one blanket model isn't 
going to work because everyone's different. But the beauty with Moho is that you can use that as the basis of your service and your OT process within the service. And you can use it to as a, a framework for your clinical reasoning. And when you are working with patients or service users that need an alternative viewpoint, maybe like the Kawa model, then you can easily use the Kawa model with the patient alongside the Moho. So I think the, the Moho is very honest in its limitations and it is aware of that. And Dr. Kilhoffner said that from the very start. He said there are things that the model might not be able to address in the depth that it needs to be addressed. Take, for example, the skills and the analysis of the skills. So you can use other resources alongside it. I think that was one of the other things that I've talking to other people that have sort of had hang ups, not necessarily hang ups, but hesitations is that I think it was also commonly believed that like Moho had this model and then they had this whole range of tools and you had to like use the Moho tools for it to work kind of thing, which is what the case is with a lot of you know programs and stuff that people put together is you have to do it this way because this is the way it's standardized and that kind of thing. But they're very separate entities the tools and the model itself the 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 tools are based off the model but they're not like it's not a step-by-step process which again is what a lot of people are looking for weirdly i don't know why but they're looking for that shortcut but it's this this i I can choose what assessments (laughs) i use depending on that person needs so if i have a person that is really unable to sit and talk with me and chat about their life story and their experiences and their roles and where they are in life and their goals then i will do a mo host on them and just observe them if i have someone that is mo host being a screening tool for if yeah so it's the model human occupation screening tool yeah. and it's completely observational you can observe someone doing an activity in an environment and then score how how they are able to to do that activity um and then you've also got assessments where you can just observe the person in their natural environment so the volitional questionnaire that will help you really unpick barriers to participation and again the the person doesn't need to actively engage with you as a therapist obviously they need to consent to to the observations or and be aware that you are observing them Mm. um but if they are if they feel that they're unable to actually engage with you during that session then they don't have to they can do the 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 task and then you could just observe from a distance yeah it's i'm definitely gonna have to revisit i i still get this feeling and i don't know whether you're brave enough to have an opinion on this (laughs) but i feel like all the pieces are there. I feel like the model needs to be redrawn, like the actual diagram. I would definitely agree that the, the the diagram does need to be redrawn to somehow reflect that it is a heterarchy and not a hierarchy or a flow diagram. I wouldn't know where to start with that. Start with getting rid of the old one. <laughs> <laughs> It's not my place to do so. No, you can do anything. I believe in you. You have the you have the Instagram account that says so. Well, it's it's like I was saying. Like a lot of the points that I've been asking you about today are based on the fact that this is how 
public perception is of this model, which is generally based on what they see. And, like, the whole point of a visual representation of a model is for it to represent the model. And I don't feel, even based on what you've described these parts, I don't feel the visualization. If people haven't seen it, I'll include a photo of it um, in the show notes so you can check it out there. But just Google Moho and you'll find pictures of it. But it's been the same image. I can remember that exact image from my textbook from... When did I? When was my first year? Two thousand and three. So what's that? Like nineteen far out. Nineteen years ago. It's the same image, and based on what yep. you're describing, that image doesn't represent what you're talking about now, which is how the model is obviously being taught and used and that sort of thing. I feel Have like you it's... ever seen the very very first original Moho image of the person with the, the segments in the actual person. Yep, that's the one that was in my textbook. <laughs> that, so things have moved on slightly from that one. So, slightly. A um, lot of the images are still a person, though. Yeah. So I don't have one to hand of the new... Yeah, but that, that one definitely is uh, dated, shall we say. A lot of them show a person, even just some sort of, like, obviously the original had these categories inside the person, um, but a lot of them show a person at one end of this this process with the volition, habituation, performance capacity. Not very good, am I? I should have one to hand, really. I'm surprised you don't have, like, posters on your wall. And... <laughs> but even, like, what I was saying before about, like, the overlapping like the the second section where it is looking at um, skill, performance, participation and how they're overlapping yeah. and even the different sizes of the, the arrows. Like skills is tiny little arrow which is inside performance, which is a slightly bigger arrow which is inside participation. Even the fact that they're arrows is indicating that this is a process going from this side yeah. to this side and I just feel like like I actually really am interested in how you've presented the model because it's very different from how it was taught to me back in the day. Yeah. I still feel like the actual visualization of that model needs a drastic revamp. Cuz the other issue I've seen in a lot of the like cuz there's a heap of different images online, but some of them even like the environment only is shown as having an impact over sort of performance onwards in this yeah process. it's just a word above the dimensions of doing which doesn't actually which means you know oh the environment has no in like no impact at all on the person it's only once the person starts doing something that it has an impact and i'm like yeah. well uh, that's not necessarily true no it needs to be considered in absolutely every level mm. oh i found the old one that's the exact one out of my textbook <laughs> that is the yeah. exact one out of my textbook terrible yeah. but even in that the environment is only at one end yeah it's just because yeah, uh... I know like in talking with like Michael Awama about the development of the Kawa and the visualization of that the original visualization of Kawa was just the four constructs with like arrows going everywhere to join them all because they all interrelate. I'm like, okay, yeah, cool. So even from a visual point of view, at least that works. And then they came up with the metaphor to actually show that even more. I think 
I feel like this is a model where you really need to dive in a lot deeper because if you just look at the image, it doesn't give you an accurate indication of how the thing works or what it is, mm-hmm. which is, I don't know, terrible marketing. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I'm not part of that world, so it's 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 interesting. But, I mean, like, all the pieces are there. I am interested, you mentioned before, about how it was had sort of updated to incorporate culture. How, did, how does it incorporate culture now? Cultural factors. Well, that would, be, that would be in your social environment and also your physical environment and how that impacts on every aspect so how your culture influences what you're interested in how your culture influences what is important to you um, how your um, culture influences your daily routine and the activities that you need to do and choose to do within that daily routine so it was more it wasn't necessarily the model itself it was more just the definition of what they were looking at under those categories that they expanded to incorporate more of that so what do they look at in culture uh, cu- under culture? Yeah. In in what way? Well, you said it was it had updated to look at culture more. So obviously something changed. Uh, um so I think it's what I meant by that is that it's it's um updated to cover more be more inclusive um, and not just your stereotypical white middle class aspect. So is that the model or the research you're talking about? Like I'd the say the research, base? the research behind it, where it's been used, um, the, the countries that it has been used in um, effectively um, and they've shown effective use of it um, and also... Um, the populations that it's used with. Yeah, because I think that was one of the other issues, you know, 20 years ago, obviously, when I was taught it, was a lot of the evidence base was, like you said, it was white, middle class, English, American. It was, and and most of the research seemed to be coming out of um, the, the Kielhofner camp kind of thing. So it was all the people that were involved in the model that were the only ones seemingly back then. Obviously, it was when it was first getting started. That's yeah, that, that that's going to be how things work, no matter yeah. what the model is. But it was still in that, I feel like, early stages where it was gaining trouble. It had gained traction in that sort of westernized culture, but hadn't really been obviously it probably had been started to be used in some other cultures but there wasn't a lot of research around it there wasn't much evidence of that back yeah. then um, so there's now quite a heavy evidence base um of use in south america and also japan um and other european countries like scandinavia and like i said the the model of human occupation screening tool has actually been translated into 19 different languages um, and there is also evidence to suggest that it is the most widely used model internationally. That doesn't surprise me. That part doesn't surprise me. I, 
It it surprises me. It doesn't surprise me on terms of when you look at the evidence base and see what people are using, or even just me talking to people from all around the world. Most people know what the moho is. They've heard of it at least. Um, what does surprise me is it's the most widely used because it also seems to be the most damn complex model of the whole lot of them. Uh, which generally, for most things in life, doesn't lend itself to be particularly no. uh, flourishing uh, in sort of marketability being so complex. I think the beauty of the model, though, is it can and has been demonstrated to be successfully used in physical health and mental health and with all age ranges, so from paediatrics through to elder care and also in every hospital or medical setting or community setting um, it even lends itself to role emerging settings or non-traditional OT um, if you uh, in the UK we have a lot of OTs working in what we would call generic roles especially in mental health where they are working as a mental health practitioner um, same, and same here the, the, um, a lot of OTs that I know that work in those sort of roles, they use the model when they're working with people in their mind to help them with the clinical reasoning and maintain their professional identity as an OT. But because their model can work so nicely alongside other models, then it's not conflicting with what the MDT or the community service is, is doing. That The OTs can use it to do their clinical thinking and their risk assessing and keep their core values at, at, at the forefront of their practice, but still work alongside other generic workers within their within their team. So is the fact that it is it's got so many moving parts, do you feel like that is a detriment to people actually getting their head around it and using it properly? Obviously I'm a bad example because I never did. Well no, I, I used it, but I obviously never got my head around it. Um, I think from from my experiences and what many people have said to me, the barriers to use is the fact that the language can be quite intimidating. Mm -hmm. It's very, very academic. Mm -hmm. um, it's The model is communicated in a very academic way. Um, and a lot of us OTs are doers. So I think when you are able to make that jump and start actually using the model in practice that's when your knowledge and your understanding comes into fruition and your ability to actually use the model the fact that it's got so many components is difficult because if you're just starting out using it you've you're worried that you're missing aspects and you're like oh have I thought about this have I thought about that um I just you know you've just got to start with looking at the person what they're doing why they're doing why they're doing it how they're doing it and where they're doing it and what are the influence what are the influencing influencing factors what are the what are their strengths and what are the limitations and then build from there because once you start looking at the what the how the why the when and the where you will automatically start thinking about that person's volition how that makes them feel um why or why not are they, why are they engaging or why are they not engaging? You may or may not be able to answer this because it's not necessarily a MOHO-specific question, but something I often wonder is we have MOHO, for example, or pick any model, 
and it has all these different components and they have some way that the 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 people that have researched them and written about them have decided that these components interact based on whatever it is that they found but would it on a practical level be any different if i just gave someone a list of all those components and they just made sure that they touched upon them all Personally, <laughs> like I said, it's a big kind of out there question, and you may not I have mean, an answer. But I've often wondered but, about that. Well, for me, for me, um, I would say that's where you've got to start, really, isn't it? Mm. To have a list of those areas, have an understanding of what you're actually looking at in those areas, and just start touching base with those with the person. The reason I say that is. Uh, it seems to me like when I was first starting uni, learning a whole range of different models, we've got another model here in Australia called the, I can't even remember, OPMA, Occupational Performance Measure Australia, and it's got equally as many, if not more, components. And I hated it, but mainly because it had so many parts. But one thing that some of the more common models are having in common, something you've described today, is that all of those components interact with each other. So what's the point of having them in a very structured way if mm. everything impacts everything anyway? You look yeah. at the Kawa, you look at Moho, you look at something as simple as the PEO. Everything interacts with each yeah. other. So as long as you're... I would use, like, my initial reaction would be like, okay, cool, you've got all these different pieces. That's really important to make sure that I actually do look at all those because if I'm forgetting to look at some of those things with an individual, then that's where things can slip through the cracks. But as long as I'm hitting all of those things, what? And there's going to be some academic, like, screaming murder at me out there somewhere (laughs) right now. That's why I was hesitating to answer the question. I was like, "Ah." I don't have to hesitate. They I can think, scream. I'll have them on. They, think, can, they can argue their point later. But I'm like, what's why? Yeah. Ultimately, if you look at the what the person is doing, why they're doing it, how they're doing it, when they're doing it, how that makes them feel and the impact that the environment has on their ability to do what they need to do and why they need to do it, then that's the most important part, isn't it, really? Because mm. I think that's a, uh, that's a big difference in... Like I've been describing this whole time when I was taught the moho, it was taught as a process. But I don't, and I've never felt comfortable sitting, it's never felt comfortable with me, any of our models, not just moho, but any of our models being a process because I feel like the assessment process or our OT process or we've got so many different frameworks and models and all that sort of stuff in this profession that trying to conceptualize where they fit with what we do is sometimes hard, especially for younger clinicians. But trying, then you've got a model that is a model that is meant to help you understand an individual's experience of their Mm. occupational narrative, but is also framed as a process. It just kind of gets really muddy. And that's where I've liked models that are very, clean like that's like to say the peo there's no process in the peo it's you make sure you look at these things it shows you that these all all three of these things interact and the little bit in the middle where all of those things interact is the occupational performance and your aim is to make that bigger make the occupational performance better the moho needs to go maybe it needs to be drawn as a venn diagram 
maybe It'll and then be... you have the dimensions of doing in one circle the person in the circle circles. and then the environment in another possibly but then is that just expand is that like peo2 yeah with just 2.0 <laughs> yeah. but that's and that's that's where i'm like but then we've got like i said before we've got occupy like there's occupational uh, i can't remember the exact uh, terminology but there's occupational frameworks and stuff that actually go through our clinical process which is separate from the model so you can do that with insert model insert assessment here kind of thing but that shows you that whole like you know initial assessment and clinical reasoning sort of process right through to evaluation feedback loop closure kind of thing yeah separating so Moho, those things out are good yeah so moho actually has its own therapeutic reasoning process um it's got seven steps mm. and dr kilhoffner actually talks about how you can use the model in each of those steps but it's separate um, from the model. It's separate from yeah. the model. So that's where I'm like, don't draw the model as a process if you've already got a process to use with the model because that just gets confusing. Yeah. People are going, it's semantics. It's not semantics. Semantics it's are important. Semantics, semantics it's completely are important. Different. You, you've got the model is like your, your scaffolding, your framework, and the process is how you traverse from one point of the scaffolding to the other to get to where you want to go mm. you look at i, I try and look because i the other thing i get asked a lot from students is is this or talking about whatever usually car wire actually is it a model or is it a framework or is it a this or is it a that and in the end it's like well this tool moho kawa opma peo whatever it is this is these individuals, in this instance, like Gary Kielhoffner's, attempt to try and explain the human experience. So you're using that tool developed by these people based on this research and what they found to be an explanation of the human experience to try and understand this person that you're working with. So It's a vessel of communication. Yeah. Yeah, you're trying to break down their experience in a way that you can then see it say on paper for example it doesn't necessarily have to be on paper but quote unquote on paper so that you can see how the different aspects of that person's life is impacting them and their occupational performance in this profession's um, instance going forward and then assessing them yes the moho does have and that's the one thing i really do like about the moho is it has a lot of other tools and stuff associated with it so obviously it's, even if it was a very small population that it was standardized against originally, it was standardized to a level where they could have all of these different standardized, again, assessments and well-researched and repeatedly researched assessments come out of that, that evidence base. That's a, if you look at that sort of body of work as a whole, like that's one, that's lifetimes of work by a number of people including Gary Kielhoffner but there's a, a whole range of people that have added to that evidence base like you talked about Sue earlier um, she's definitely one of them uh, promoting the moho quite widely especially on Twitter if anyone's on Twitter you probably will have seen Sue um, I don't there's a lot of models out there that don't have that level of engagement from the 
research side of it. So they never get to that stage, which is one of the other issues with the profession in terms of using our own evidence base. So yes, it's important that we have a range of models sort of in our toolkit that we can use. Yes, you want to be able to, that's for the purpose of being able to tailor um, how you gain that understanding of the people you're working with. Because like we said earlier, like Moho isn't going to work for everyone. Carwa isn't going to work for everyone. PEO won't work for everyone. Um, I talked about in the episode with with Michael Awama about how um, traditional Japanese culture, indigenous Australian culture view the actual concept of occupation differently. So PEO won't work because it doesn't make any sense from a Mm. cultural point of view. Um, So, But you need all of these various tools. But having tools that are actually evidence-based is also super important. There's these layers on layers on layers of things we need to do as OTs. And this is this is that base layer. This is your foundations for actually being a good OT, is having all, a, a range of these models that are evidence-based and having a good understanding. And I'm the first to admit that I've let my understanding of the moho go, but you've you've piqued my interest. I think I might <laughs> I think I might have to attend one of your webinars. <laughs> You'd be more than welcome. So you've taken this on as a... It started off as a, a maternity leave project when you started a blog. Uh, and then you've taken to the Instaverse on Instagram. Yep. And now you've started offering... Well, you're still doing the blog and you're still on Instagram dropping tons of moho content. That's how we connected, essentially is just tons of moho content. I was like, holy moly, this chick really loves a moho. (laughs) But now you've started offering like other trainings as well. You've started offering webinars and that sort of stuff. Where's that sort of coming from? Is that coming from a just a, oh, I need something to do point still? Or is it coming from a, I need more people to understand how this model actually works? Or like, what's your, what's your why? What's my why? Um, well, I love talking about Moho. <laughs> I could never have guessed. No, um, lots of people are just approaching me and, and asking um, whether there was um, training available or whether you needed training to use the model. Um, where where would you where could you go to learn about the model? And I've always explicitly said that you you know you don't need official training. The, the best place, the best resources to go to is Moho Clearing clearinghouse website with chicago uni that's where all of the the assessments are that's where all of the research is um start there and then lots of people coming to me with questions um about using the model in practice so unpicking that academia and actually using it as an ot and i just thought well there's there's obviously a need to translate this model into practice and the feedback that i got from colleagues that I worked with and students that I had was that I was able to communicate that in quite a good way and that they really understood how you could turn that theory into practice so I um, started I just came up with an idea about doing webinars and thought I'd float it out there and see if anyone would, would take it up and it's sort of grown from there and now I've got a whole six months worth of webinars out there 
that I've got to write and deliver <laughs> about um, about Moho, how to use it. So um, the first series is six six sessions long, and that's just looking at the model, how you use it, how you use it to do your um, gather a set, um, gather information, how you use that in your intervention planning, and how you can use that to um, communicate and um, inform your documentation and your care planning. So it's, it's basically just looking at each area of the therapeutic reasoning process. Um, and then the next lot of seminars um, look specifically at the different areas. So um, MOHO with older adults, MOHO in paediatrics, MOHO in mental health, MOHO in physical health. And are these recorded or are these like scheduled that you have to deliver live? So they are scheduled and delivered live. Um, I do two sessions for each webinar, um, one on a Monday evening and one on a Saturday morning to try and get different time zones. Although, as we both know, I'm not quite so good with the whole time travel um, concept. That's all right. Neither am I. I, I stuffed to that. Tonight's up. Again, I feel like I say, I'm starting to say that every time I record now. Oh, sorry, I stuffed up the time zone. <laughs> Um, and then I do record it and I send it out. I send the recording out to everyone who bought tickets. So if for whatever reason they were unable to attend, they can still watch the webinar. And then um, alongside the webinar is a workbook to for them to take notes and then ask questions for them to go away and synthesize the information that they've learned. And then I've also included at the end of the workbook some reflective questions to do immediately after the session and then later about six months so that you can really use the hours webinar for your CPD so in the UK we have to um, not just attend the CPD event but show how we're going to use it to improve our practice um, and how doing that CPD has impacted on the service that we deliver and the care that we deliver and our service users experience so it's there it's not those questions aren't just specific to UK OTs they can be used internationally to evidence how you're using or have used or training to improve your practice as an OT. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm pretty sure that would be the same, probably less formal, but similar you would have to do that for, to claim it in Australia in that yeah. they're not as strict on like has to be used to improve like your yeah. current workplace kind of thing, but uh, you do have to evidence, show evidence of learning and like a completed workbook is pretty good evidence as far as I'm yeah. concerned. So. Yeah, that's definitely something if you are in Australia. I know the states have slightly different rules um, in that CPD stuff has to be registered prior to you doing it and that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, in Australia, if anyone's interested in Australia, you can definitely do these and claim these for your CPD hours as well. Fab. So there you go. There you go. Now you learned something. You probably already knew <laughs> that, but that's okay. And I've also started um, producing um, PDFs around the different areas as well. Um, just to break them down and then it gives you a little um, description of what you're looking in that area um, and then um, so case studies with questions to answer those case studies and then you can use those questions with your service users and your patients to find information about that area or that concept that's awesome that's that's super and that's is that available through your blog or is Website. that through the website that's awesome anything else you'd like to go into or share i don't think so 
no just thank you for having me no Rob. that's okay i know it's taken a while to for me to pluck up the courage to come on and talk i know for somebody um, who loves to talk about moho you sure avoided talking about moho for a very long time <laughs> yeah i just um yeah nervous fear of failure where reduce would, personal causation i was gonna say where <laughs> would that fit in the model but you're all over it no, it was absolutely my pleasure. Like I said, I've been trying to get you on here for a very long time because you have messages that need to be shared and now we are able to share them. So MohoOT on Instagram, MohoOT yep. on Facebook. Yep. Just whatever platform you're on, the Moho, search the MohoOT on LinkedIn and on Facebook, we do have a peer support group, which is Understanding Moho in Practice. Um, come along, join that. If you've got any questions, pop it in there. Um, it's just a little peer support network for people who are using or want to use Moho in practice. Um, there's uh, the same content goes on the Facebook and the Instagram, uh, uh, the Facebook and the LinkedIn account. So you don't have to be a member of both. It's just there on both platforms. And the website is www.themohoot.com. Themohoot.com. Yeah, the Mohoot. <laughs> and if anyone's got any questions, feel free to email me at roof at themohoot.com. I'll whack all those links in the show notes so you don't have to keep going back and listening again and writing it down. <laughs> so I'll put all those in the show notes if anyone's interested. Do get in touch. She's very easy to talk to once you convince her to talk. <laughs> Definitely, I, I'm going to go and have a look and see when your next webinar is because I think I need to attend some. Perfect. Thank you. If you liked this episode and want to check out more, head over to OccupiedPodcast.com or search Occupied Podcast in your favorite podcasting app. If you have thoughts or reflections on the topics discussed today, please do get in contact. We'd love to hear from you. And lastly... If you got some value from this and you want to help us out, like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Remember, be good to yourself, be good to others, and always keep occupied.